Welcome to a Nutrition and Clinical Practice podcast. I am Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Joining me today are authors of the paper, Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease, A Review of Spectrum of Disease, Diagnoses, and Therapy, which is published in the October 2011 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Christoph Kopeck, a gastroenterology fellow at the Leahy Clinic in Burlington, Massachusetts, and Dr. David Burns, a senior staff gastroenterologist at the Leahy Clinic and Director of Nutrition Support. I'd like to start our podcast by asking Dr. Kopeck and Dr. Burns if they have any disclosures on this topic that they would like to share. Uh, no disclosures, and none for me as well. Well, thank you for joining me today. I'd like to begin our discussion of your paper by reviewing some of the background on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or NAFLS, and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or NASH. It seems that the topic of NAFLD and NASH is of increasing importance because of the growing prevalence of this disease in our society. For many years, alcoholic liver disease was the most predominant form of liver disease in the United States. NAFLD appears to be gaining ground and becoming the leading cause of liver dysfunction. To what do you guys attribute this change? Uh, well, Dr. Hassey, I believe the, uh, the given that the uh, strongest association that exists with uh, NAFLD and obesity and metabolic syndrome uh, probably accounts for a majority in that rise with the um, widespread adaptation of, of a so-called Western diet and with the uh, increasingly sedentary lifestyle. The obesity epidemic appears to be expanding not just in the uh, United States but also abroad or uh, worldwide. This can actually be seen uh, most significantly in the South Asian countries for decades and centuries, there's been essentially no obesity and also no evidence of fatty liver in those countries. However, we now see with that, with the increasing prevalence of the uh, metabolic syndrome, the increasing prevalence of NAFLD is also noted. Additional factors, although much less common, that one can uh, also contribute this rise to would be use of certain medications, such as amiodarone, tamoxifen, and maybe even surgical interventions with rapid weight loss. Also, with greater understanding of NAFLD, increasing rates of diagnosis in patients, which were previously classified as idiopathic, uh, can also serve as contributing uh, factors to all this. Before we go any further in the discussion, Dr. Burns, could you briefly explain to our audience the difference between NAFLD and NASH? NAFLD is a spectrum of disease. It's non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, meaning that it could be bland steatosis of the liver, asteatohepatitis, which would be non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or NASH. This could uh, advance to fibrosis or even NASH-related cirrhosis. So NAFLD really is the new terminology that most gastroenterologists and hepatologists are using to encompass the entire spectrum of fat-related liver disease. NASH being a subset of NAFLD. Also, I think it's clear in your paper that not necessarily everyone with NAFLD will actually develop NASH or further liver disease such as fibrosis or cirrhosis. And in the paper, you talk about this two-hit hypothesis and the progression from fatty liver disease to steatohepatitis or even fibrosis and cirrhosis. And what is it about this two-hit hypothesis and why is this important? 
Well, Dr. Hassi, in summary, uh, the hypothesis states that there is an initial accumulation of pre-fatty acids, primarily because of diet, uh, which contribute to oxidative stress or increases oxidative stress on the uh, hepatocytes, and that would be the first hit. Subsequently, uh, this oxidative stress uh, activates an inflammatory pathway, uh, which causes the actual damage, and that's the uh, this inflammatory pathway counts for the second hit. The importance of the hypothesis comes primarily as this is the basis for current and potentially future treatment of fatty liver. For example, healthy diet, exercise, weight loss, they serve to prevent or reverse the first hit. Uh, additionally, we have current therapies and research, the major ones being pioglitazones and other TZDs, which focus on decreasing free fatty acids and also the uh, oxidative stress. Other agents, which I'm sure are, uh, are of increasing interest, such as uh, vitamin E and uh, also vitamin C, are potent antioxidants, and they also potentially have a role in uh, reversing this first hit of the two-hit model. Other agents, such as pentoxifaline, can um, have an anti-inflammatory role and hence potentially play a role in preventing the uh, second hit from taking place. You mentioned that Western diet and obesity plays a role in NAFLD. So what would you say might be a typical profile of a patient who presents with NAFLD or NASH? And are there certain characteristics that would make you suspect this disease and someone with elevated liver function tests. And so how would you go about diagnosing this disease? A typical patient is one that has longstanding abnormal LFTs or liver function tests without really an etiology. Typically what we'll do is we'll see a patient who comes in and has had a life insurance physical and they did liver tests or they were rejected as a blood donor or went into for routine labs with their primary care physician and they have mildly ab abnormal hepatic transaminases. That's usually what clues us in that there may be a problem. Then typically what we do is we rule out other causes of hepatitis, either viral etiologies, autoimmune diseases, or congenital diseases like hemochromatosis. Then we're kind of left with other. A typical patient with NAFL or NASH would be somebody who presents with these abnormal LFTs and may have a history of being overweight, have a history of obesity, possibly diabetes, dyslipidemia, et cetera. So those are some of the things that might clue us into the presence of fat-mediated liver disease. But generally speaking, most patients are really quite asymptomatic, and it's generally an incidental finding. So once you've kind of diagnosed or decided that the patient has NAFLD or NASH, what are some of the basic treatment tenets of that, and how effective are they? And specifically, what role does nutrition treatment? You mentioned a little bit about antioxidants, vitamin C, vitamin E, but what other nutrition treatments and specific nutrient supplementation, how would that help in the treatment of those diseases? Currently, only uh, lifestyle modifications are recommended for treatment of fatty liver. In particular, exercise and controlled weight loss, described as less than uh, 1.6 kilograms per week, have been proven in a number of trials to be effective for treatment. Uh, now, what does that mean? In one study, uh, patients with uh, treatment consisting of increased physical activity and modest weight loss, as well as nutritional counseling, have been found to have histologic, that's key, key word, histologic improvement in more than 70% of the cases. In another trial, a modest weight loss was associated with a significant drop in transaminases, which could be a poor man's marker of inflammation. 
uh, when compared to uh, control. These findings have been replicated in several other trials. However, at this point, no particular commercial nutritional plan exists yet for NAFL. As of today, outside of the clinical trials that we see, there is no pharmacotherapy or surgical therapy that has been recommended by GI and nutritional societies for the management of NAFLD. There is no true recommendation out there yet. There is a number of promising agents, uh, including vitamin D. The dose that's been used is 800 milligrams daily that actually in the recent trials have showed to improve appearance of, of the liver histologically. Other medications would be anti-diabetic agents such as pioglitazone. They also have shown some improvement, but although that appears to, uh, to reverse with cessation of treatment. Intake of uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids also appeared to be protective against uh, fatty liver, causing a decrease in inflammation. Additionally, in regards to surgical options, bypass surgery with weight loss has also appeared to uh, reverse the inflammatory changes, oxidative damage, and even fibrosis. That said, despite all these promises lurking on the horizon, once again, only weight loss is the current treatment of choice for NAFLD. It is important to mention to your patients with counseling that with a regimented diet plan with exercise and a uh, controlled weight loss, they have a really good chance of halting the progression and even potentially reversing some of the damage that has already been inflicted. We've been focusing here on how metabolic syndrome and obesity tend to be the main causes of NAFLD. You mentioned that different medications can also cause NAFLD. What other conditions can cause this disease? Besides the metabolic syndrome and obesity, uh, one also has to look out for diabetes, bypass surgeries with uh, rapid weight loss. Ethnicity also appears to play a role with whites um, having actually higher rate than African Americans of NAFLD despite similar rates of obesity. Parenteral nutrition can also be another contributing factor to development of fatty liver. You mentioned in your paper that there will be some joint guidelines coming out soon from the American College of Gastroenterology, the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases, and the American Gastroenterological Association. When do you expect those new guidelines to be released, and what changes do you think you might see from the guidelines that were released in 2002? Well, we were certainly hoping that the guidelines would have been released by now at the annual AGA and AASLD meeting. However, that obviously didn't happen. I suspect that the guidelines will be released in the near future, probably in the next year or two, as we are in a dire need of the update given that the last guidelines were established in 2002. I suspect that they will update the initial diagnostic criteria for NAFLD and NASH and also the timing of when to obtain a biopsy. At this point, it might still be somewhat early to include pharmacotherapy and nutritional supplements such as vitamin E and possible treatment options, as the jury still appears to be out. We might, however, see more of a uh, mention of the role of a bypass surgery in managing the patients with NAFLD and NASH. If we put back on our nutrition support hats here for a minute, since most of the people listening to this podcast have a distinct interest in nutrition support, what alterations would we need to make when we supply nutrition support to a patient for NAFLD? For example, let's say we have a patient that has a history of NAFLD who ends up in the hospital and for some reason has a non-functional gut and requires parenteral nutrition. What changes, if there are any changes, would we need to make in the nutrition prescription? Generally speaking, whenever we have a patient who comes into the hospital who requires nutrition support and they're overweight, 
possibly have metabolic syndrome or NAFLD. Generally, what we recommend is adequate protein and hypocaloric feeds. Generally speaking, the rough formula for the average patient is uh, that we'll provide 25 calories per kilo of nutrition for their actual body weight, assuming that they're not overweight or underweight. We will do an adjusted body weight for those patients who are obese, and then we will, generally speaking, underfeed them, perhaps providing 15 to 20 calories per kilo of their adjusted body weight. So as a general prescription, we will provide these patients with adequate dietary protein so that they can heal their surgical wounds or fight their infections, but we'll underfeed them total calories. That way we can try to mobilize some of their fat stores. In terms of parenteral nutrition, the equation gets a little bit more complicated because parenteral nutrition, when not judiciously used, can cause fat infiltration in the liver, NAFLD, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, and ultimately cirrhosis if continued long enough. Generally speaking, again, we limit total calories. If a patient is going to be on TPN for more than 10 to 14 days, we'll start to cycle the TPN over a 12-hour period rather than continuous infusion. Continuous infusion of hypertonic dextrose doesn't allow the normal physiologic, quote-unquote, ebb and flow of nutrition that you'd see in a patient who was normally eating. By that, I mean carbohydrates are stored uh, in the liver as glycogen and then mobilized in the fasting period. By cycling the TPN, you more uh, simulate this. So we'll cycle our patients, we'll underfeed them. We'll also watch that they're metabolizing their lipids reasonably. We won't overfeed lipid, and we'll also check a serum triglyceride after the lipids have been infused to ensure that they're able to assimilate the lipid and not getting dyslipidemia from it. Thank you, Dr. Burns. Finally, Dr. Kopeck and Dr. Burns, in your paper, you mentioned future directions. Can you summarize for us what the future holds with regards to fatty liver disease? There's a lot of interest now nowadays in uh, NAFLD and uh, NASH, given that the prevalence is so uh, increasing uh, so rapidly. At this point, first and foremost, we need to further research the effectiveness of therapies already out on the market, already mentioned in, uh, in the publication, such as the anti-diabetic medication and the antioxidant therapy. We need to clarify and make specific recommendations regarding the nutritional needs of these patients. We need to essentially improve the things that we are already working on. They're already being researched. Another thing that would be of immense value would be a potential substitute for liver biopsy. Uh, that's the current gold standard, but its uh, sensitivity remains somewhat subpar, and it is uh, invasive, making it less than ideal. New imaging techniques, such as, for example, the uh, MR lithography, are on the horizon as a potential substitute for the uh, biopsy and diagnosis and the staging of uh, NAFLD. Well, thank you, Dr. Kopeck and Dr. Burns. This has definitely been an enlightening discussion today. I invite our readers to find out more about this topic in their article in the October 2011 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. Mm-hmm.